This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. I don't have an exact statistic, but it is very clear that many people oppose the death penalty. In the US and abroad, they all have their reasons. Some claim it's inhumane, others say we have no right as humans to decide who lives and dies. Some of them have a point, honestly. The libertarian in me says that no government should have the right to execute its citizens for any reason. The state should not have that kind of power. But if you've listened to any other episode of this podcast, you know where I stand. It's a necessary evil that needs some reform. What I'm going to talk about today has me rethinking my opinion. I doubt I'll ever fully oppose the death penalty, but there are some things that really make me question my beliefs on this. If you're like me, currently standing in the Some People Deserve to Be Put Down camp, this episode is going to piss you off and give you a few things to think about. So buckle the fuck up. Today we are talking about cases against the death penalty. It all began when they took me from my home and put me on death row. A crime for which I'm totally innocent, you know. This is from a song by the great Johnny Cash, and it will echo throughout this first case. The first case I'm going to bring you today has a little bit of everything. Sodomy, gender equality, and even fire. It took place in Florida, of course. On the morning of February 20th, 1976, a Florida Highway Patrol officer and his Canadian police officer friend approached a car that was parked at a rest stop for a routine check. Seems kind of fishy to me, I guess. People sleep at rest stops. That's what they're for, unless I've been completely misinformed my whole life. Inside the car were Jesse Taffaro, his wife Sonny Jacobs, their two kids, and a man named Walter Rhodes. Everyone was asleep. Because the cops had seen a gun on the floor of the car, they woke the occupants up and ordered the men to get out of the car. Rhodes would testify that Taffaro had shot both officers with the gun that was on the floor. Said gun was legally registered to Sonny, who bought guns for her husband due to his criminal record. Oh yeah, Taffaro had been convicted of attempted robbery, violating sodomy laws, and attempted rape. Probably should have mentioned that in the beginning. At the time of the murders, he was on parole for the attempted rape conviction. After shooting the officers, Rhodes alleged that Taffaro led the other occupants of the car to a police car, which they stole to get away. Taffaro's story was that Rhodes was actually the trigger man and getaway driver. Later on, the group abandoned the police car and kidnapped another man in order to steal his car. All three adults were arrested after hitting a roadblock. At the time of arrest, Taffaro had the gun tucked away in his waistband. Seems pretty cut and dry, doesn't it? Gunpowder tests were conducted on everyone but the youngest child. These revealed that Rhodes had residue consistent with having discharged a weapon. Taffaro had residue consistent with handling an unclean or recently discharged weapon, or possibly discharging a weapon. 
Jacobs and her nine-year-old son had residue consistent with handling an unclean or recently discharged weapon. From this evidence, it looks like Rhodes was the actual killer. Knowing he was kind of fucked either way, Rhodes took a plea deal and agreed to testify against Teferro and Jacobs in exchange for a reduced charge and a 20-year sentence. At trial, he said that Jacobs fired the gun from the back seat before Teferro took it and shot the officers. Looks to me like he's trying to throw them under the bus to save his own ass. He would later recant his testimony and admit to being the gunman, but ultimately went back to his original story. Walter Rhodes got 20 years for second-degree murder. He was released on good behavior in 1994. Jesse Teferro and Sonny Jacobs were both convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. Wow, look at Florida. I think this is the first time I've seen a woman get the same sentence as a man for the same crime. I'm kind of surprised. Their kids were placed into the care of their maternal grandparents. In 1982, a tragic plane crash killed the grandparents and the children had to be separated and placed into foster care. While serving their time, Teferro and Jacobs communicated through letters. At the time, Florida didn't have a death row for women. Jacobs was placed into solitary confinement for the first five years she was behind bars. She was only let out once or twice a week for exercise. Yoga became her way to pass the time, and she taught it to other prisoners after being moved to Gen Pop. The jury in her trial recommended a life sentence, but the judge in the case decided to impose the death sentence anyway. In 1981, the Florida Supreme Court decided that Sonny Jacobs would have her sentence commuted to life. They found that the judge had no sufficient basis to override the jury's recommendation for sentencing. Jesse Teferro was executed by electrocution on May 4, 1990. His death was drawn out and torturous. After being strapped into Old Sparky, a synthetic sponge was placed on his head. I didn't know this, but apparently they're supposed to use natural sea sponges to help with conductivity and speed up the dying process. It took three zaps and seven minutes to kill Teferro. Old Sparky malfunctioned three times. Teferro's head burst into flames. His cause of death was immolation due to the electric chair malfunctioning. This story doesn't end with Jesse Teferro's execution. After his death, Walter Rhodes confessed that he had in fact been the gunman. An innocent man's head caught on fire during an execution for a crime he didn't commit. The actual killer was given 20 years. And that, my dear last male listeners, is why some people oppose the death penalty. Jesse's execution was allegedly the inspiration for the electrocution scene that Stephen King wrote in The Green Mile. Jesse Teferro used his last words to say that the death penalty was very arbitrary and capricious, and that the same laws that can go against crime can go against you tomorrow. His last meal was broccoli, steak, and hot tea. In modern times, the death penalty is handed out to everyone pretty equally. Okay, that's a lie and I know it. The justice system spares women far more than men. Back before, fuck it, I'll say 1980, even though that's being generous, 
race tended to play a big part in whether or not someone was handed a death sentence. Alabama, Alaska, and Hawaii stick out most in my memory on that. Racism is another one of those reasons why people oppose capital punishment. In today's time, there are very few examples of racism playing any part in getting a death sentence. They are out there, don't come banging at my door with your torches and pitchforks. It does happen, just not nearly as much as it did in the early 1900s. George Stinney Jr. was born into a South Carolina family on October 21, 1929. His father, George Sr., worked at the town's sawmill and the family lived in company housing. Alkaloo was a working-class town where the black and white families were separated by railroad tracks. Schools and churches were segregated, so interactions between races were limited. Two young girls, Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, had gone out on their bikes to look for Maypops. Those are passion flowers, I guess. I don't know what passion flowers are either. The only flowers we have in Utah are cactus flowers and construction barrels. Anyway, the girls rode past the home of the Stinney family and asked George and his little sister if they knew where to find these flowers. After the girls failed to return home, a search was conducted. George Stinney Sr. helped look for the girls. Their bodies were found in a ditch on the African-American side of the railroad tracks. Both of them had been beaten with some kind of blunt metal object like a railroad spike. Both girls had suffered severe blunt force trauma which resulted in their skulls being penetrated. The medical examiner reported that the wounds to their heads had been caused by a blunt instrument with a round head about the size of a hammer. No evidence of sexual assault was found on the younger girl, but the older one had bruising on her genitals. For context, Betty was 11 and Mary was less than two weeks away from her seventh birthday. Because this is 1940s South Carolina and the bodies were found on the black side of town, I probably don't need to explain anything else to you. George Stinney Jr. was an instant suspect. He was a young black boy and technically one of the last people to see the girls alive. His little sister Amy told the police that she had been with him during the time the murders were alleged to have happened. Now don't get me wrong, I've lied for my brother before, but there's no way in hell I'd lie for him if he was out killing innocent people. You're on your own with that one. George and his older brother John were arrested on suspicion of murder. John was eventually released, but George wasn't so lucky. He was kept in custody and not allowed to see his parents. A deputy by the name of H.S. Newman wrote a statement that said, I arrested a boy by the name of George Stinney. He then made a confession and told me where to find a piece of iron about 15 inches where he said he'd put it in a ditch about six feet from the bicycle. George Jr. wasn't the only one whose life was destroyed because of this murder. His father was fired from his job at the sawmill and the family was forced to leave their company housing. They feared for their lives. During his time in custody and his trial, George was not allowed to see his family at all and had no support. He was held about 50 miles outside of his hometown because of the risk of lynching. Imagine that, being 14 years old, held for murder, and you have no one by your side. I was a tough kid, but even I couldn't have survived such a harrowing ordeal by myself. If you know anything about American law, you'll have at least a vague idea of the rights we have as citizens. 
the Sixth Amendment guarantees the right to legal counsel, but this was not routinely observed until a 1963 Supreme Court ruling that explicitly required representation during legal proceedings. Fifty years after this crime, George's seventh grade teacher, W.L. Hamilton, spoke about it in an interview. He said, I remember the day he killed those children. He got into a fight with a girl at school who was his neighbor. In those days, you didn't have to worry about children carrying guns and knives to school, but George carried a little knife and he scratched this child with his knife. I took him outside and we went for a little walk and I talked to him. We went back into the school. In a submissive way, he begged for the child's pardon. Amy Ruffner, George's little sister, reportedly denied this allegation and went so far as to contact the man about it. She asked him why he'd made those claims. According to the man, someone had paid him to say it. Hamilton died shortly after his interview was published. I don't know what the fuck was going on back in the 40s, but the entire trial, including jury selection, took place on April 24, 1944. George had a court-appointed lawyer named Charles Plowden who was a tax commissioner campaigning for election to some local position. Plowden didn't even fucking try. He didn't challenge the police officers who claimed that George had confessed to the murder. He didn't argue against the two different versions of this confession that the prosecution brought in as evidence either. One version said that Stinney had tried to help the girls after one of them had fallen in the ditch and was attacked, so he defended himself and ended up killing them. The other one said he followed the girls, attacking Mary first and then Betty. Two opposite ends of the spectrum. The only corroborating evidence for either one of these was the written statement of Deputy Newman, in which he claimed that George had confessed. That's it. No actual written confession or anything. Other than the police, only three witnesses were called by the prosecution. The man who discovered the bodies, and the two doctors who performed the autopsies. The court allowed them to discuss the possibility of rape because of the bruises on Betty's genitals. George's attorney didn't call any witnesses. He didn't cross-examine anyone either. He offered no fucking defense for this 14-year-old kid. The entire trial lasted two and a half hours. Back in this time, no black Americans were allowed into the courtroom. More than a thousand white people were packed in there, though. George's jury was all white. This was somewhat common, as most African Americans in this time were disenfranchised and not counted as available to serve on juries. Deliberations took less than 10 minutes. George was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by electrocution. No transcript of the trial exists. No appeal was filed. What the actual fuck? George's family, as well as some other organizations, appealed to the governor for clemency based on how young George was. Other people tried to get the governor to move forward with the execution. He wrote a response to an appeal for clemency in which he stated, I have just talked with the officer who made the arrest in this case. It may be interesting for you to know that Stinney killed the smaller girl to rape the larger one. Then he killed the larger girl and raped her dead body. 20 minutes later, he returned and attempted to rape her again, but her body was too cold. All of this, he admitted himself. On June 14, 1944, Governor Olin D. Johnston visited George in the death house. 
I really don't understand why. George's parents were allowed to visit him one time during his incarceration. Under the threat of lynching, they weren't allowed to see him after that. George Junius Stinney Jr. was executed by electrocution on June 16, 1944. Because he was too small for the electric chair, a Bible was placed under him to boost him up. After being asked for his final words, the executioner pulled a strap across George's mouth. Tears began streaming down his face. A mask was placed over his face, which didn't fit him. After the electricity began, the mask slipped down and this poor boy's anguish was visible. Family members of the victims who had witnessed the execution later claimed that the Bible booster seat and the hood slipping down were just rumors. I don't know, I wasn't there, but I have a hard time believing that someone so small could be executed in this way without running into some issues. Seventy years after this execution took place, in 2014, a judge in South Carolina held a two-day hearing to determine if George's conviction should be vacated. Three of his surviving siblings, as well as members of the search party and a few experts, testified on his behalf. Despite all of this testimony, the state argued that his conviction should stand. The trial court found in favor of the family and decided to vacate the conviction. They found that George was fundamentally deprived of due process during the entire case that his confession simply cannot be said to be known or voluntary, and that his attorney did little to nothing to represent him. His legal representation was the essence of being ineffective. The judge also said, I can think of no greater injustice. Whether he murdered those little girls or not, I don't think a 14-year-old boy was deserving of electrocution. I personally believe that he was innocent. At the very least, his trial was unfair. Though I'm sad to know that a kid was put to death for something he didn't do, I'm glad his family was eventually able to get his conviction vacated. George didn't have any last words, and I can't find anything on his last meal. While I'm on the topic of race, there's a case that Sword and Scale covered all the way back in episodes 42 and 43 I would like to discuss. We were promised an update, but never got one, so I guess that's my job. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I highly recommend that you do. This case absolutely blew my fucking mind. And the update I have for you has reinforced my distrust for the justice system in this country. Rodney Reed was born in California in 1967 to his mother who was a nurse and his father who served in the Air Force. In high school, he played on the football team and dreamed of being a professional boxer. He was such a good athlete that he was a Texas Golden Gloves champion two years in a row and was even invited to the U.S. Olympic trials. This kid was going places, but after moving to Bastrop, Texas, things would start to spiral out of control. Rodney was convicted of murdering 19-year-old Stacy Stites in 1996. To summarize, Stacy was engaged to a cop, but was seeing Rodney on the side. While I don't agree with her cheating, after learning what her fiancé was like, I can honestly see why she did. This affair would get her killed, though, 
The only question remaining is who did it. This was rural Texas back in 1996. They found the DNA of a black man inside Stacy's body. To them, the case was open and shut. But when you go back and look at all the little pieces of information together, you'll start to wonder. The murder weapon was never tested for DNA. Pieces of said weapon, which was Stacy's belt, were found in two locations, with her body and with her fiance's abandoned truck. Jimmy Fennell, who was Stacy's fiance, gave different accounts of where he was on the night of the murder and later confessed to his prison cellmate that he killed Stacy because she was sleeping with a black dude. And yeah, this police officer was serving prison time for kidnapping and raping a woman while he was on duty. Mike did his episodes on this all the way back in April of 2015. A lot has happened since then. On November 15, 2019, Rodney was given an indefinite stay of execution. This came just five days before he was scheduled to get the needle. In February of 2020, the Supreme Court denied hearing Rodney's appeal because of ongoing legal battles in the lower courts. And now we're getting to the part that makes me angry. On October 31st, 2021, the judge appointed to review the case recommended to the Court of Criminal Appeals that Rodney not be given a new trial. Never mind the DNA evidence and other witnesses who have since come forward to corroborate Rodney's story about having a prior relationship with Stacy. On April 25, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear his case. In this appeal, Rodney claimed that the state's statute of limitations on when DNA testing can be performed is unconstitutional. Which, yeah, what the fuck? How are we allowed to solve decades-old cold cases with DNA, but have a time limit when it comes to exonerating someone? That makes no fucking sense. He also claimed that he should have been allowed to start his federal appeals immediately after the state courts were done with him, rather than waiting until the ruling where DNA testing was initially denied. I have to side with him on this one. This looks like a classic case of the state doing everything in their power to cover their own ass. During the Supreme Court hearing, the state tried to claim that this was all just a big charade to delay the execution. Are you fucking for real? This man has possible evidence to exonerate him and save his life, and you want to claim it's just to delay his death. I am all for killing murderous rapists, but only if they can be proved beyond any doubt to be just that. Rodney's case is full of doubt, and also full of corrupt officials trying to bury shit and save their own skin. Whoever murdered Stacy should be executed, but I am compelled to believe that Rodney Reed is not the one who did it. The Supreme Court ruled 6-3 in favor of Rodney on April 19, 2023. This has opened the door for him to get that evidence tested and hopefully get the truth out. Rodney Reed and Jimmy Fennell Jr. have both been accused of sex crimes in the past. The main difference here is that Rodney was never convicted of any of them. People run their mouths. False accusations destroy lives. Believe me, I know way more about that than I should. I am grateful that we're finally giving this dude a chance to prove his innocence. Some people don't get that chance. I sincerely hope that the truth comes out of this and we can finally get some answers. 
I don't know Rodney personally, and I never jump on the everything is racist bandwagon, but this case is one of those that has given me a very strong distrust for the system and made me really think about my views on capital punishment. May justice prevail, and the real monster in this case, whoever he is, finally be put to death for this atrocity. Feels like it's been a minute since I threw in a historical case, but even back before electric chairs and lethal injections, people were still fucking up executions. In 1542, a little girl named Mary was born to a very important man named James. Unfortunately for her, James would die prematurely and leave her with an inheritance that most of us could only dream of. At just six days old, Mary became the Queen of Scotland. Her father was King James V. Initially, she was to be married off to the son of King Henry VIII, Prince Edward, but the Scots refused to ratify that agreement. Henry was pissed and turned this into a war between England and Scotland. In the midst of this war, Mary was sent off to France to be the bride of a French prince. Just want to point out here, she was six at the time she was sent away from her homeland. That's, uh, kind of gross, but whatever. This marriage was arranged to ensure a Catholic alliance in the fight against Protestant England. Here we go again with the religious nonsense. In 1561, Mary's teenage husband died, leaving her a widow at the age of 19. Good Lord. Mary went on to fall in love with a Protestant man, Lord Darnley. This romance wouldn't last though as he was weak and began drinking heavily. Mary gave him no authority in running the country and ruled it by herself. Darnley would become jealous of Mary's secretary, later gathering a group of people and murdering him in front of Mary, who was six months pregnant at the time. She had a son, the future King James VI of Scotland and the I of England. This is confusing as fuck. No wonder we don't do all this royalty nonsense anymore. Baby James was baptized as a Catholic, which put the Protestants on high alert. Lord Darnley later died of mysterious circumstances. The house he was staying in blew up, and his body was found out in the garden. It wasn't the explosion that killed him, though. He'd been strangled to death. Being a single woman ain't easy, and Mary soon found herself chasing after a man named James Hepburn. Rumors started going around that she was pregnant with his baby. Hepburn was accused of Lord Darnley's murder, but was found not guilty. Shortly after this, the pair were married. The Lords of Congregation, whatever the fuck that is, had some issues with Mary and Hepburn bumping uglies before they were married, and she was locked up in Levin Castle, where she gave birth to stillborn twins. Hepburn also left Mary after she was imprisoned and ran off to Denmark where he died in 1578, apparently insane. Say what you will about her, but Mary had a fucking rough life. Goddamn. Mary escaped from Levin Castle in 1568 and rallied an army to try to fight the Protestants, but they were defeated. She then fled to England. Queen Elizabeth I used Mary as a political pawn and kept her as a prisoner in several castles over the next 19 years. Now I don't know about any of you, 
but it probably wouldn't take long for me to snap if I was being held captive. Mary began conspiring against Elizabeth. Coded letters were discovered being sent to others by Mary, and she was found guilty of treason. Fun fact, treason is still punishable by death in the US. I know we're talking about the UK in this case, but yeah, you can still be put down for treason. Clearly don't take advantage of that, though. Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed by beheading in 1587. She was taken to a castle with a name I know for a fact I can't pronounce. Fucking Brits and their weird names for things. Mary was stripped down to her underclothes and a blindfold covered her eyes. She knelt on a cushion and held on to an execution block while multiple people watched. It took three swings of an axe to kill her. It's believed that she survived the first one. The second one was what took her out, and the third one was only inflicted to fully sever her head. Mary's son became king after Elizabeth's death in 1603. He had no memory of his mother, but in 1612, he had her body exhumed and moved to Westminster Abbey to be reburied in a place of honor. In one final fuck you to Elizabeth, he had her body moved to a less prominent place of rest. For as well documented as this case is, I still can't find anything on Mary's last words or last meal. There is no shortage of botched executions throughout history. Sword and Scale has covered a handful of them, most notably that of Clayton Lockett, who I've mentioned at some point in another episode. That motherfucker got what he deserved, though. My mind can't be changed on that one. Opponents of the death penalty often cite botched executions as their reason for not supporting it. it seems like no matter how much time passes and how many new methods we introduce, there will always be that potential. Punishments can't be cruel and unusual, but they certainly don't have to be painless either. On March 25, 1982, during a light rainstorm in Los Angeles, two young men were out riding their bikes to go see their girlfriends. Jerome Dunn was riding ahead of his friend, Kenneth Hayes, and stopped next to a van. Kenneth would later testify that he saw Jerome talking and heard some laughter as well as someone speaking inside the van. As he approached the van, a hand reached out from the driver's window and shot Jerome several times. Five gunshot wounds were found on Jerome's body, including two in the head. Only one other witness, Patricia Lewis, saw the shooting happen. She later told police that she had been in a car driving northbound near where the shooting took place. As they came to the intersection of McKinley Avenue and 88th Place, a van approached the intersection on her right. She could hear laughter coming from inside. The van passed a few houses before stopping suddenly and backing up. The car Patricia was in had to back up to give it space to turn onto 88th Place. Patricia said that after the van pulled up next to Jerome, there was a short conversation before a gun came out of the driver's window. She didn't see the shooting, but she heard the shots. After she made it to her house on 87th place, she saw the van speeding away. When the police found the van, it had been stripped. It was later discovered that the van had been stolen from a supermarket parking lot about a half hour before the shooting. The suspects in the theft were two black men, described as having short, natural-styled hair. 
they managed to get four fingerprints out of the van. Barry Williams was arrested on April 22, 1982 for an unrelated murder. Donald Billingsley had been shot at Green Meadow Park, which was only a few blocks from where Jerome had been killed. After Patricia Lewis identified Williams as the driver of the van in Jerome's murder, he was charged with that one too. These charges came exactly one year after Donald Billingsley was killed. The description of the men driving the van stated that they had naturally styled hair, which Williams did not have. He had jerry curls. Both of these shootings took place in an area that was overrun with gang violence. The Crips and the Bloods, go check out the California episode if you want a little bit of insight on this mess, were constantly at each other's throats over territorial disputes. The prosecution in this case claimed that Williams was a high-ranking member of the Bloods. According to the state, he shot Jerome Dunn for wearing a blue jacket. Imagine that, being gunned down for wearing the wrong color. It's shit like this that makes me glad I live behind the Zion Curtain. Though I hate the church's influence on dumb liquor laws and refusal to let us gamble, I do appreciate the gun rights and containment of gang violence to the Salt Lake-Glendale area. A man named Arthur Cox was sitting in the L.A. County Jail on armed robbery charges. While here, he told the cops and the deputy district attorney that he had shared a cell with Barry Williams, and that Williams had blamed the shooting on a man named Curtis Thomas. Apparently, Williams had told Thomas to shoot Jerome. Before trial, the defense filed a motion to exclude Cox's testimony due to the fact that he was acting as an agent to the prosecution when he had spoken to Williams about his alleged involvement in the murder. This would have been a violation of his constitutional rights, as Williams was not represented by legal counsel at the time of these conversations. The deputy DA testified that the interview with Cox was conducted because he had offered to help gather information on the case in exchange for a deal on his robbery charges. Cox was told that there wouldn't be any consideration given for information on the case, only for testimony in the trial. Still kind of seems fucky to me. The motion to bar this testimony was denied. Williams had been convicted of murder, two counts of attempted murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder in the Donald Billingsley case. He was given 34 years to life. He went to trial in October of 1985 for Jerome's murder. The lead prosecutor really pushed the gang narrative and said that Williams was a member of the 89th Street Family Bloods. Jerome had been shot after Williams led a meeting to discuss how to better protect the neighborhood from the Crips. Kenneth Hayes was called to testify during the trial. He repeated his story of how he heard laughter coming from the car before seeing a right hand come out of the driver's window with a gun. Jerome was shot multiple times got up and ran, then collapsed. He also testified that both he and Jerome had been wearing blue that night, but that neither of them were Crips. Patricia Lewis also testified in the trial, stating that she heard Williams say, let's go fuck him up, as Jerome rode by the van on his bike. She claimed that Williams had been the one to shoot Jerome out the driver's side window, which contradicted her testimony from the preliminary hearing where she claimed she couldn't tell which man in the van had put their hand out the window. Patricia said that she had never seen Williams at her house, but her husband Joe later testified that Williams was part of a cadet corps he organized and was around frequently. 
Patricia also denied looking at pictures of Williams, even though Joe kept photo albums of the Cadet Corps members out where she'd easily be able to see them. Arthur Cox, who you'll remember from earlier, testified that he was also a member of the 89th Street Family Bloods and that Williams was the leader. He reiterated that Williams shared a cell with him and told him Curtis Thomas was the gunman, but that he himself had ordered the shooting to happen. Cox and the prosecutors claimed that no deal was made for his testimony. This was a blatant lie. Cox was given probation for the armed robbery charge, moved somewhere else, and given some cash. I'm no legal expert, but if you ask me, this was some straight fuckery. Many other people were called to testify, including police officers, family members of those involved, and even a forensic dentist. Ernest Cox, Arthur's brother, was also called to the stand as he was in the county jail with his brother. He had witnessed Arthur reading the court transcript of William's preliminary hearing. Arthur even told him that if he could get information on Williams, it would give him probation for the robbery charges instead of the four-year sentence that he was facing. I'll link my sources, but after going through all this, I really don't know how they could find Williams guilty on this one. But they did. He was sentenced to death for this crime. California Supreme Court upheld his conviction in 1998, but some ACLU lawyers would go on to do an extensive investigation and uncover evidence that the prosecution had left out of the trial. In 2000, the California Supreme Court would fuck up again and deny the state petition for habeas corpus these attorneys had filed for Williams. If you're a true crime person, you've probably heard the term habeas corpus a million times, until I started this podcast, I had no fucking idea what it even is. Translated from Latin, it means show me the body, which is very fitting. Basically, it's a constitutional right that protects against unlawful and indefinite imprisonment. They have to either show their reasons for locking you up, or they have to let you go. Williams went on to file a federal petition for a writ of habeas corpus in January of 2000. The next year, two of the witnesses recanted their testimony. Both of them gave statements to the defense attorneys. Cox claimed that the deputy DA threatened to charge him as an accessory to murder in the Billingsley case if he didn't testify against Williams. Whatever sentence he got would be tacked onto the four years for robbery. He then claimed that he accepted immunity in the Billingsley case and also a cash payment in exchange for his testimony. I lied on the stand against Barry Williams because I didn't want to do the 25 years. When the district attorney offered to pay me and relocate me, I agreed to say what he wanted me to say. The defense also located a witness who had not been called during the trial. She said that on the night Donald Billingsley was killed, she heard gunshots and saw three men running away. Williams was not one of them. Instead, she identified one of the men as Willie Bridges Jr., who was a cousin to Barry Williams. John Gardner was another key witness for the state. He initially claimed to have seen Williams and spoken with him about a rival Crips member being taken out of the box, which is their way of saying put in the fucking ground. Gardner said that he spoke with Williams about the murder again a week later. Like Arthur Cox, Gardner was relocated and given a lighter sentence for a crime he pled guilty to. 
Thanks to a mandatory minimum sentence law, the sale of marijuana charge came with two to four years in prison. That's the same as a fucking armed robbery charge. What the fuck? Either way, this mandatory two to four years ended up being a mere eight days in jail for Gardner. Kinda weird how that works, isn't it? After Gardner recanted his testimony, he claimed that the lead prosecutor approached him and asked him to testify against Williams in exchange for a lighter sentence on a robbery charge. He said, either Barry was going to do time for the murder or I was going to do time for the robbery. They coached Gardner on what to say and told him to look at Barry in the courtroom, but he couldn't do it. He knew what he was doing was wrong. I was lying and Barry knew it. I have never heard Barry Williams say that he was responsible for killing anyone. After he testified, Gardner went to the district attorneys and told them that he had lied on the stand and wanted to change his testimony, even if it meant he'd get time for the robbery. They didn't listen to him. Gardner also said that on the night Jerome was killed, he was at a friend's house when Willie Bridges showed up out of breath and soaked from the rain. He had a 38 caliber on him. Apparently, the scent of a freshly fired gun was present. God damn, I love that smell. I need to hit the range soon. It's been too long. Bridges told Gardner that Bone, Jerome Dunn's street name, had been shot and he wanted them to hide the gun for him. Bridges later gave a statement to the defense saying that he was driving the van Williams was a passenger in the night Jerome was killed. He claimed that he and some other people in the van were surprised when one of the passengers stuck the gun out and shot Jerome. I guess that's why he wanted his friends to hide it. Fast forward all the way to December of 2013. Yeah, it took that long. Williams was granted a hearing based on his claims of prosecutorial misconduct. This hearing was held on a few different days between March and April of 2015. The meat and potatoes of these claims was a mountain of evidence that the prosecution had failed to disclose, as well as threatening witnesses and allowing false testimony into the trial. In March of 2016, U.S. District Judge David Carter vacated the murder conviction in Jerome Dunn's case. He found that the prosecution had failed to turn over evidence, allowed witnesses to lie, and made false statements themselves. Williams was to be retried for this murder and was given a new lawyer. After two years of waiting around, an ACLU lawyer filed a motion to remove him because he had failed to do any work on the case. Her motion was granted and Williams was given yet another new attorney. This one actually did their job. Los Angeles County got a new DA in November of 2020, who had promised during his campaign to end the death penalty in LA County. On January 15, 2021, the prosecution dismissed the murder case against Williams. Barry Williams remained in prison for the murder of Donald Billingsley, but finally had his name cleared in Jerome's case. I looked him up on the California Department of Corrections website and he is not listed as being incarcerated. Maybe he finally got out. Or maybe he died in prison. I guess we'll never know. That was a long one. God damn. Did I open your mind a little bit? Or were you against the death penalty to begin with? I get it. I really do. 
It definitely needs some reform. And the state needs to be held accountable for their fuck-ups. In a perfect world, the system would work. People would be honest. Hell, in a perfect world, no one would commit crimes worthy of a death sentence. But we don't live in a perfect world. People lie on the stand. Cops bury the truth to cover for their brothers in blue. Bodies catch on fire during electrocutions. One thing will always remain the same, though. Reality is a cold bitch. If you enjoyed this last meal, tell a friend. Share my shit all over the internet. I'm on Rumble as well as most podcast apps. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. This episode was very different from a lot of my other ones. Not very many evils of dead men living on in this one. So I'll leave you with a quote from Elie Wiesel. There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. See you next time.